I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Today's episode is sponsored by Emblem Athletic. The best option out there for keeping your unit looking amazing with custom shirts, hoodies, and other gear. They're a veteran-owned business that specializes in making it easy for you. And if you've ever ordered unit gear, you know how difficult it can be. Emblem knows you have better things to do than design gear, collect money, and worst of all, sort through a bunch of shirts. Emblem takes care of everything, including, get this, free shipping worldwide. When it comes to something like a deployment shirt, you know you're going to have this for the rest of your life. So trust Emblem to deliver the best, guaranteed. Visit www.emblemathletic.com to get started with a free online store today. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Byerly. This week, we're diving into the Green Notebook of Stephen Pressfield. He's the author of some of my favorite books to include Gates of Fire and the War of Art. And he's returning to the ancient world again with his latest book, A Man at Arms, which comes out on March 2nd. We do our best to give you a preview of the book without giving too much away. We also have a great discussion about something he calls resistance. This is this negative force that tries to stop you anytime you want to move to a higher level, end a bad habit, or achieve a goal. And it typically shows up as a voice in our heads, one that sounds a lot like our own, that is really good at either distracting us or talking us out of what we're trying to do. So he's going to help us figure out how to stop resistance from keeping us from leading with the best version of ourselves. And later in the interview, we talk about the differences between having a hierarchical mindset and a territorial mindset. And if you're like me and find yourself struggling at times because you're comparing yourself to other people, you're going to want to listen to Steve's take on it. So please welcome to the show, Stephen Pressfield. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's incredible to have you on the show. We really appreciate you sitting down with us. And just for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, I'm a writer of novels and of other stuff. Probably the books that uh, your listeners might have heard about are Gates of Fire, which is about the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae, and and another book called The War of Art that's kind of about creativity and uh, the negative forces that we all have to fight, the internal war we have to fight in our head. I'm a former Marine from back in the day, a reservist back in the Vietnam era. I've been a screenwriter and a writer of novels for... uh, about 30 years, but it took me about 25 years to get my first book published. So I'm one of those guys that was not an overnight success. That's it, I guess. That's a, that's a quick bio. Yes, that's great. And I know you're here to talk about a new book that you're also releasing as well. Most of my novels are set in the ancient world and they're kind of, they're military themed. The ancient Spartans, Alexander the Great, Macedonians, that kind of thing, the Athenians, and my new, I've been sort of out of that area for about 10 or 12 years, working in contemporary areas. And this new book, it's called A Man at Arms. And it's, uh, it's my return to the ancient world 
after that absence. And it's great to be back. I've really missed it. I only have one recurring character in my fiction. He's a kind of a one-man killing machine named Telamon of Arcadia. And he's been in three of my books. And people have asked me, when are you going to write a book that's just about this character? So that's what I wanted to do for you know about 12 years. And finally, I did this book, A Man at Arms, is about this one recurring character whose story I've always wanted to follow. And it comes out on uh, March 2nd. And I think it's a pretty good one. I just finished it uh, this past month, Steve, and I love the book. And one of the things that struck me about it was the central theme. One of the central themes of it, at least, is, is faith. And I've read every other book you've written. So uh, I'm an expert on Steve Pressfield. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Just kidding. And so this is the first time I, I think you've ever made faith a central part of your book. Could you talk a little bit about that? And have you given any thoughts to, to why now? Uh, Yeah, it's a great question, Jill. You know, it's funny that uh, you and I were just before we started this thing, we were talking a little bit about books and the creative process is such a weird thing that a lot of times when you start out with a story, at least this is my experience, and it takes you in places that you didn't expect to go. And I definitely, you know, A Man in Arms does definitely without giving anything away, there is quite a bit of what you would call faith in it. And I really didn't intend that at the start. But I do think that I knew that this character, Telamon of Arcadia, was going to have a big change, a big life change. And it's my belief that when that happens, for any of us in real life or in fiction, it happens at the soul level. You know, it happens at the spiritual level. It doesn't happen, you know, at the intellectual level or the academic level or anything like that. So this book just sort of evolved into, um, I had to have him change at a really deep level And that kind of came down to issues of love, issues of faith, issues of a cause greater than yourself, that kind of thing. Yeah, it completely fascinated me. That was one of the aspects of the book that just kind of caught me by surprise, because again, I hadn't seen that before in some of your other work. Another question I had was the setting of the book. Uh, It takes place after the death of Jesus in the first century. And you really did a great job, just like you did in your previous books in the ancient world of capturing the feel of what it was probably like in the first century in Jerusalem. Did you have to do a lot of research or going back to our previous conversations and what you just said, was it this like lifetime of reading that you've done that you were able to extract from that and use that to capture in the book? Well, that's true, Joe. That's part of it. But I know, you know, a few years ago, like six or seven years ago, I wrote a book that uh, was called The Lion's Gate. That was about the 1967 Arab-Israeli war, the Six-Day War. And I spent nine weeks in Israel, a lot of it in Jerusalem, and some of it, you know, at least on the borders of the Sinai Desert, where a lot of a man-at-arms takes place. So you know how when you're, when you're in a place and you're just you're out in it day after day after day? And I was talking, I interviewed like 75 vets of that war, men and women, and that really kind of steeped me. Those conversations they inevitably get back to the Bible. They inevitably go back to ancient times, you know? So I think that was where I sort of got that feeling. I mean, certainly as I'm writing the book, A Man in Arms, I could absolutely see everything in front of me. I could see the land. I knew where I was. And uh, I just was trying to, you know, in my descriptions to give the reader a sense of what it's like. 
Yeah. And then to continue with our you know, theme of not spoiling the book at all, <laughs> um, I just try to be really generic. You talked about the Bible and I grew up going to Catholic school and I remember it always just seemed like the church was on a glide path for success early on, you know, after the death of Jesus. But in the book, you kind of see how the different factions of the church, it was almost like they were competing with each other in, in a sense. Was that exactly how it was or, or is that kind of the fiction aspect of it coming in? I think it may be fictionalized a little bit, Joe. It's my imagination a little bit. But actually, my girlfriend, Diana, was going to uh, Fuller Seminary here in L.A. for a while. And so I've imbibed a bunch of stuff from her that she studied because she was really like very much into the early martyrs, the early Christian martyrs. And it turns out, I mean, that's a really fascinating era that we really haven't seen in, in movies or in books. But there was tremendous struggle going on, not just against the forces like the Roman Empire that were trying to crush the early church, but within the church itself, as you can imagine, you know, factions are vying to be, you know, who's going to define what what's going on. And the, the interesting thing is that we don't have very much written from that era, right? It, it doesn't really start to, you know, written accounts don't really start coming until, you know, maybe the second century AD or something like that. So I had to kind of make up some of that. But I think it is really true that it was a real time of ferment, like any new faith or new movement when the avatar of the faith, you know, is gone. And it's up to the successors to sort of define. It's kind of like when Alexander the Great died and you had the war of his successors where there were like seven or eight of these former generals that were, you know, basically tore the world apart themselves, right? Each guy took another a part of it and were fighting for, uh, for supremacy. Yeah, no, that's awesome, Steve. And, and last thing, and then we'll transition the, uh, the interview, but you've got a quote. It's Telemann of Arcadia, as he says, he talks about the study of war. Could you talk about that quote a little bit? Uh, that's a good question, Joe. The quote is, uh, one thing to study war and another to live the warrior's life. And that's just, uh, that, that's kind of Telemann's credo in a nutshell. And in many ways, it's my credo, too, although I would change the word warrior to artist. But I think it's true in any field that we're in. It's one thing to go into a field on a kind of a surface level, you know, to study it, to be dedicated to it, to have all the trappings of it. But it's another thing entirely to actually live the life, you know, and particularly like in the realm of faith. I mean, there are many people that are ministers or pastors or priests or so on and so forth, right? They can do the lectures, they can do the sermons, they can handle kind of the surface area of it. But how many of them are really men of faith, you know, or women of faith? Very, very few, you know, and you know them when you see them. So anyway, that's kind of a credo for me. And my aspiration is not to study war, but to live the warrior's life. And of course, what I mean by that is the artist's life. Yeah, that's a great conversation to have and kind of building off of that. I know when we sat down and, and talked to Sean Coyne the other day, we talked about resistance and we talked about the fact that, you know, we seem to resist those things that are beneficial for us or those things that are good for us. Can you talk a little bit about what you define resistance as and why we seem to want to resist those things that will kind of push us forward in life? That's definitely a deep, deep subject, Jacob. I could talk for about 10 hours on that. but Let's uh, do it. I'm fine with that. 
In my book, The War of Art, I identify the villain, the devil, the, the force that all artists and creative people and entrepreneurs have to confront as resistance. I call it resistance with a capital R. And to define it, for instance, in a writer's world, if you roll in a piece of blank paper into your typewriter, or you sit down at a blank screen on your laptop, and you're about to start, you can feel this negative force radiating off that screen into your face, trying to stop you from doing your work. It's kind of the same thing as if you buy a treadmill and bring it home, and it winds up you know, gathering cobwebs in the attic. There is some kind of force out there that whenever we aspire to move to a higher level, whether it's ethically, morally, creatively, whatever, if we want to end a bad habit like drinking or using drugs or abusing others, or if we want to write a book, if we want to enact a dream, we want to write a screenplay, we want to do a startup, we want to lose 50 pounds, we want to become fit, anything like that where we're aspiring to a higher level, this force of self-sabotage will enter the picture. And um, the form it will take usually is a voice in our heads that sounds like it's our voice. And the voice will say something like, you're a bum, you're a loser. Who do you think you are to tackle this project? It's been done before a million times, way better than you could ever do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the emotions that will be attached to this negative force will be fear, self-doubt, hesitancy, procrastination, the desire to be distracted. That's a huge one. And that's what I call resistance. I don't know what you guys have talked about with Sean, but to me, I got my ass kicked by resistance for like the first seven or eight years of my creative life trying to write. I couldn't do anything. I just blew up one you know, aspect of my life after another. And when I finally sort of gave a name to it, and I could call it resistance, and I could accept that it was real and that I had to confront it and overcome it somehow, that was the moment that sort of turned the corner for me. And I was able to work you know, professionally from then on. When I say professionally, I mean, even though I wasn't making any money for years, in my mind, I was a pro and I was working every day, you know, pursuing my calling. I love how you define resistance and how it's this great force that keeps us from pursuing, you know, what we're supposed to be doing. And I know for me, I've learned to try to mentally trick resistance. And so instead of by looking at it is why does anybody want to listen to me if I'm writing a blog post? I just tell resistance that I'm not asking people to listen to me. I'm just trying to start a conversation. And then that helps me get over that fear of of putting thoughts on a page. Anything that I, I've ever done, even this podcast, you know, like Nobody wants to listen to my voice to a podcast. Well, it's just me and Jacob asking somebody like Stephen Pressfield questions, and he's doing the talking. So I, for me, at least, Steve, it's helped me to figure out how to trick resistance to be able to work around it. Yeah, I think a lot of times we do have to trick it. And that's a great way you do it, Joe. That's like a little jujitsu trick, you know? I'm more from the school of, uh, I sort of think of it often like, it's like diving into a cold pool. You know, if you stand on the edge, you can be paralyzed forever and never jump in there. But once you hit the cold water and the shock wears off after 30 seconds or so, then you can swim. So that's that's kind of my version. I just say, get in there, absorb that first shock and just keep going. And you will kind of catch your breath. 
I'm going to bring this back to the philosophical again. And you talk about the forces that are at work when you do things. And I know a lot of times in sports, people say they're in a zone, you know, when they're really doing well, whether it's golf or basketball or baseball. And they talk about just having almost like this another level. And another thing, I, I'm a huge fan of the book, The Alchemist, and I'll probably mess up his last name, but I know Paulo uh, Coelho. When mm -hmm. he said he was writing that book, he said, I didn't write that book. He said something basically took me over and wrote that book for me because it needed to get out to the world. Have you ever had an experience like that when you were writing a book or even in life in general? I have that experience all the time. In fact, I think that that's sort of really what the name of the game is as, as a writer. And I'm sure it's true for songwriters. I certainly heard this for them. And I've heard Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this on a couple of her TED Talks. I think that in many ways, the writer's skill or the thing that I would say took me like 30 years to learn is to somehow get into that zone. What you're trying to overcome is a sense of self-consciousness, that as you're putting words down on paper, you're critiquing, you're censoring them as you're going along and you're paralyzing yourself, which would be the same thing in sports, like particularly in golf, right? You're standing on the first tee and you're just imagining people are watching you. What happens if you shank it out of bounds, et cetera, et cetera, right? So the whole sort of mental game is to somehow get past that. So yeah, definitely. I mean, like The Legend of Bagger Vance is another one of my books, was actually my first book. And that came out in like four months. I didn't even know I had written it. And I also find a lot of times I will read stuff, maybe a three-page block of something I worked on the day before, and I have no memory of writing it. And usually it's good. And I look at it and I go, wow, did I write that? You know? So yeah, very definitely. I think that state of flow, it's sort of an egoless state where you, you really get your own kind of identity as your, your mundane personal self out of the way completely and just let, you know, the forces of the universe come through. I'm definitely a believer that stories, novels, movies exist in the universe in potential before we start to write them. And I certainly have heard many, many songwriters say that, like they're driving down the freeway and suddenly a whole new song will just come into their heads and they have to like pull over to the side of the road and get it down before it vanishes. So definitely, yeah, flow is to me what the artist's skill is all about. Steve, I really wish you wouldn't have brought up the game of golf in this interview. Jacob's an avid golfer, so I'm going to go ahead and excuse myself for the rest of the interview and just let you guys talk about it. <laughs> it's funny because I was going to say you brought it up, you know, and, and Joe can't be mad at me because you brought it into the conversations. But when you were talking about that being nervous, it reminded me of a story about Keegan Bradley and he attended the first Ryder Cup and he said he was on the first tee. This is a professional. He was at probably the height of his career. He was playing great golf and he was partnered with Phil Mickelson and he said he walked up to the tee and he was so nervous that all he said to himself was, please don't miss the ball. <laughs> and this is a professional golfer. So it's such a difficult game. But Joe and I often kind of talk about how golf, well, I kind of talk to Joe about it and he listens, but how golf can be relatable to life and sometimes to leadership too. And the, you know, the characteristics that go into golf when you're talking about integrity, when you're talking about not being able to rely on a team. You know, when you're talking about honesty, it really just, as Joe said, I'm an avid golfer, but I also love the game of golf. So could you talk a little bit about how 
you might, I mean, I know you've written The Legends of Bagger Vance. I know you've written about the golf swing in the past. I know you grew up as a caddy as a child. Could you talk a little bit about how your experience with golf has maybe shaped your life when it comes to writing, leadership, and, and everything? And I apologize for that question being so long, but... Uh, <laughs> no, I know that, Jacob, you're in Pinehurst right now. That's where you live, right? That is where I live, yes. Well, that's golfing golf. paradise, I guess, except for those crowned greens. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I fell in love with golf at age 11 when I started caddying, you know, at a course near where I grew up. You were talking about... Um, the integrity that's built into the game, how that kind of carries over in other, in other areas of leadership and so on. Like, for instance, if you and I are playing basketball or football or something like that, and we commit a penalty or a foul, right? We know that we've just had like a flagrant foul. A guy was going to the basket. We just took him out, right? Immediately, we'll turn around to the refs and we'll try to work the refs, right? And we'll try to say, I never touched him, you know, that kind of thing, right? In other words, we're trying to cheat. Right. We're trying to get an, an advantage. And that's part of so many sports. But golf is a sport, as you know, where the golfer must call penalties on himself, even if no one else saw what he did. If his ball moves in the rough, you know, half an inch as he's addressing it, that's a penalty. And nobody else saw it. He's got to call that on himself. And I think that that kind of mindset, you play the ball as it lays, right? Wherever it goes, you find it and you hit it again. You can't cheat. You can't take a mulligan. You can't kick it out of the, the boonies there, out of the Pinehurst. And I think that whole attitude or that mindset tends to make you responsible. It's like um, what Jocko Willink says about extreme ownership, you know, where you own whatever, whatever you've done, whatever you've said. That's kind of what golf is about. So I think it, it carries over into a kind of integrity. I think that if you're a leader... The people on, who are under you or that you're commanding or you're trying to inspire can sense that in you, you know, that you're not going to try to cheat them or cheat anything else. That what you say goes. Today's episode is also sponsored by veteran-owned Alpha Coffee Company. Their premium 100% Arabica coffee is freshly roasted for a bold, delicious flavor. Alpha Coffee supports veteran charities and has donated over 19,000 bags of coffee to deployed troops. They also offer a combinable 10% military discount and 10% off for subscriptions. Taste the Alpha difference. Purchase their coffee today from their online store or via Amazon Prime. Yeah, and on the topic of golf, like Jacob actually tried to take me golfing with him one time, and it was terrible. I did take and you golfing. We went. That's what I... No, you tried because I don't know what I was doing would be called golf. I was definitely hitting the ball, but my swing was, you know, I just couldn't get my swing down. And one of your messages, and it's even a title of one of your books is the authentic swing is, is that you have to have your swing. And, you know, as a leader, you have to have your authentic style of leadership too. So that's just, you know, one more parallel that, that you've brought out in that book, Steve, and that I see. Um, you know, just hearing you guys talk about golf. Well, there's one thing that I talk about in The Legend of Bagger Vance, which is absolutely true. I grew up with two identical twins. And the amazing thing to me, they're like exact same. You couldn't tell them apart, exact same DNA, but their golf swings were like radically different. They couldn't have been farther apart. I always thought, isn't that weird? You know, you would think they would have the same swing, but that really has led me to believe, as I think about this over and over, that each of us is born with our own swing. 
even before we've touched the golf club. If you think about Jim Furyk and that crazy swing that he has, or Fred Couples, you know, that beautiful kind of languid swing that he has, you know, it's not like they could model themselves after some perfect swing. The way they got great, they found the swing that was in them already, and they had the courage to kind of stick with that swing, you know? So for me, when I say the authentic swing, it's really a parallel for the authentic self. And I really believe that each of us come into this world as an already fully formed personality. And it's not like we have the option of uh, choosing to become X, Y, or Z. We already are whatever it is. Our role here on this planet, I think, is to find out who we already are and then become it. And I think in terms of writing or of any kind of creative enterprise, it's like if you think about the albums of Bruce Springsteen, line them all up and look at them. They could only have been written by him. And what's great about them is they're just so Springsteenian, right? They're not like Bon Jovi or you pick, pick anybody else. And so I think our task, I know I'm blathering on a little bit here, as writers and as human beings, is to find that authentic thing that is ours alone, our gift, whatever it is, and embody that and produce that. You know, there's another point you made in one of your other books was about it had to do with hierarchy versus territory. Ah, yeah. It was in the war of art. Yeah. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I know for me personally, that's something I've always struggled with, you know, in writing and as a professional, I'm always trying to compare myself to other folks. And it's like, you know, trying to compete with other people when that's not what it's about at all. I think that in the animal kingdom and even in our human kingdom, an individual can define himself in one of two ways, either territorially or hierarchically. And what I mean by that is hierarchy, you would sort of find your identity in a pecking order. You know, like high school is kind of the ultimate hierarchy, right? We know who the cool kids are and who the dweebs and the dorks are, right? And all that kind of thing. And that's when you sort of define yourself by others' opinion of you. And you will try to rise in the hierarchy based on that, or you might fall in the hierarchy based on that. And that, to me, is a recipe for failure if we have that mindset. Now, the opposite of that is the territorial mindset. If you think about in the animal kingdom, a pack of wolves will have a territory, right? It might cover 80 square miles or something like that. Or birds or, you know, lions, a pride of lions will have a territory. And that's where they feed, right? That's their hunting ground. And it's true in, in animal science that a pack or a pride is like unbeatable in its territory. A territory somehow, in some mysterious way, when you're on your home turf, it's like home court advantage or home field advantage. You just fight, fight, fight much harder there. So as a writer, as an artist, or as a human being, I try to make sure that I always define myself territorially and not hierarchically. I try to define myself by what is my gift? What is my thing? What do I do? You know, like I would say, as an example, Stevie Wonder. I don't know anything about Stevie Wonder, but pick any musician. I'm sure that in the morning they go into the studio, they sit down at the piano and they start to work. Right. And that's their territory. And that's a territory. For me, it's the keyboard. It's writing. For other people, it might be something else. But if you can focus on that thing that's your thing and not on what other people think about you, screw them, you know, 
It doesn't matter what other people think about you. I know Sean, who you were talking to, he has a phrase for this third party validation, even which he thinks is completely evil, right? If you're waiting for a third party to validate you, you're wasting your time. So the other thing I would say, the last thing I'll say about a territory, if you think about Stevie Wonder at the piano or Arnold Schwarzenegger going to the gym or whatever it is, is a territory gives back to you exactly what you give to it. You know, if you go into the gym and that's your territory and you work really hard and really strong and really smart over a period of time, you're going to be rewarded. It's going to give it back to you. It's infallible. Whereas if you're thinking hierarchically, hoping that other people are going to respond to what you do or praise you or something, it's a losing battle, you know, because there's no real justice there. You might get overpraised for something that's mediocre or underpraised for something that's great. We had a great conversation with Sean about that and his third party validation. And he kind of messaged the same thing to you. And, you know, I'll say one thing and then kind of ask a question back to golf, but we don't have to talk about golf, but I was playing golf one time and, and it's actually my wife. I was stressing so much about shooting a good score, shooting a good score. And she said to me when I came home one day, you know, not in a mean way, she said, nobody cares. She said, it doesn't matter if you shoot an 85 or a 75 and you come home and tell people or tell your friends, nobody cares what you shoot. Because I was looking for that third party validation. I was looking for people to say, you're a great golfer. You know, you're great at this game. And as soon as I let go of that, I improved. The question is, how do you let go of that? How do you get rid of that need or that urge to get, you know, not only that third party validation, but the first party validation from your family and your friends? Well, I would call family and friends also third party validation. I mean, the real validation can only come from yourself. And it's very hard to do because it's in our DNA to want approval, right? We evolved, the human race evolved as tribal creatures, you know, the primitive hunting band and the tribe and so on and so forth. And our very life depended on being accepted by the tribe and not being exiled from the tribe. So it's really in our DNA to want approval from other people. But I think you just have to sort of train yourself over time. When you catch yourself going that way and thinking those kind of thoughts, just sort of, you know, snap out of it and have a little talk with yourself. This is certainly what I do. And it's to this day, after, you know, trying for 50 years to teach myself this, I still haven't got it down. But I think it is just a process of self-reinforcement. And when you can, I mean, I actually literally each day, I have a time where I reinforce myself, you know, at the end of the day. Right. I sit down and I give myself praise for that day, you know, so I'm not looking at it from anybody else. And really, all I sort of ask of myself at the end of the day is just, did I try hard? Did I leave it all on the field that day? Not did I succeed? Did I do anything good? Because I think that's out of our control. You know, the goddess comes and the goddess goes, you know, just like golf. Right. You may have a great day. You may have a terrible day. But I just ask myself. Have I given it all I've got today? And if I have, then I say, okay, good day. Pat myself on the back and don't look to anybody else. Yeah, Steve, you know, after we talked to Sean and, and just with what you just said, I just thought back on, you know, the last seven years that I've been writing, which uh, pales in comparison to year 50. But I was thinking about how I would argue that if you were to look at how well the blog from the Green Notebook is done. It hasn't been until the last couple of years. So there was the five, six years where I was writing and nobody was even reading it. 
it was just me writing. And I just wondered, you know, like, I think you were what, I'm going to throw a number out there. I might be wrong, but like you were 48 before you even got, was it your name on a screenplay? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was just much later. And it was a lousy screenplay. (laughs) I just watched Kong Skull Island last night, but not talking about the screenplay, but do you think that a lot of times like people forget how long it took you to get where you're at today? That they feel like they can short circuit the process and just all of a sudden become a best-selling author or whatever the area is that, you know, it's an overnight thing. Whereas you could argue that you were a 20, 30 year overnight success. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely true, Joe. It's like, I don't know whether it's social media or the internet or whatever it is, but somehow it's out there in the universe now that all we need is, you know, one viral video or one, we're looking for one trick, one hack. And all of a sudden we're going to be whatever, famous, happy, you know, rich, whatever. And of course that's not life. You know, it just isn't, certainly wasn't my life. I mean, I was like 55 before I had a book published. And in many ways, that was a good thing for me, even though it was hellish while it was going on. But it was a good thing for me in the long run, because those long kind of years in the wilderness, when just like you were talking about from the Green Notebook, where nobody was paying attention. I mean, I couldn't get arrested, you know, forever and forever. But it made me ask myself and answer, why am I doing this? You know, because my family would say to me, you know, Steve, please stop. We're worried about, you know, and um, I had to answer it. And my answer was that I just couldn't do anything else. You know, when I did anything else, I would be so depressed at the end of the day that I couldn't stand myself. And so I just said, I'm in it for the long run and I don't care. You know, as long as I can feed myself one way or the other, I'm going to keep doing this. And the truth was, I really wasn't any good. You know, all those years that I was working, it was all a learning process. And I was producing mediocre stuff and crap, you know? It's a long game. It's a long process. That's just reality. Yeah, I love that you say that. And um, I, I just finished a book about Tolkien and Lewis's experience in the First World War. And one of the things that struck me about it was, I think that there was a line in there that talked about even though they were in the midst of this great conflict, you know, like their lives were on the line every day, they just had to write. Like they had their notebooks and they were jotting down, you know, the storylines that would eventually become The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and The Hobbit. And it just struck me that, you know, at least for me, like I have to write every day, even if it's just a couple of lines in a notebook, that I'm always become unbearable if I can't get those thoughts down on paper. Yeah, I definitely, I'm completely in agreement with that, Joe. I mean, I think that we actually live our lives, whether we realize it or not, on two levels. The one level is kind of the surface level, what's happening in our material life. Like with Tolkien and Lewis, they happen to be drafted or whatever, and they're there in the trenches, you know, that's that life, that's the material life. But another life is going on at the same time in them, and it's at the soul level, you know, it's at the creative level. It's where the muse, where the goddess lives. And so in many ways, I believe that life is our real life. It's like an underground river. So they were, I can absolutely understand, and you too, Joe, why you have to keep doing that. If you leave that alone, it starts to turn negative on you, you know, if you don't let that river flow. So I'm definitely a believer. Life happens on two levels, and the level that we can't see is the real level. 
So that's interesting then. And you said you really didn't get your first break until you were about 55. And I know we talked with General Donovan a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned that sometimes you're in a job or you're in a place and you don't see it at the time, but it's really exactly where you're supposed to be. You realize that later. When did you realize that that was a good thing for you? And why do you think it took so long? Not from a, you know, because I didn't get a book out there, but from a soul level, why do you think that the universe didn't give you that opportunity until you were 55? Well, that's a great question. I'm not even sure I know what the answer is. Why did it take so long? You would think it would happen sooner because I was working awful hard all the way through that. You know, I don't know. I know that at any point along the way, there was no thunderbolt waiting to happen. I just wasn't ready. You need to pay a certain amount of dues. Some people, I think, pay very small dues and they kind of break through and find out who they are. You know, I'm always jealous of like Bob Dylan or Neil Young, who found their calling, you know, when they were 17 years old. You know, how lucky were they? But yeah, I don't really know why it took so long, but it just did. There was no shortcut. If I look back at any point, you know, I had to pay whatever dues there were. Well, Steve, if I was to tell somebody, you know, that I work with that I was doing this interview and we failed to talk about Gates of Fire, I may get (laughs) a bunch of nasty looks. So, you know, you wrote The Legend of Bagger Vance and then you went back thousands of years and wrote The Gates of Fire. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, how you came to a place to write about the Spartans? That's another great question, Joe. After I finished uh, The Legend of Bagger Vance, which is kind of a weird book, right? It's a golf book. Whoever heard of a thing like that? It was enough of a hit that people said, okay, you got to write another book, which I never even thought about another book. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I was happened to be reading Herodotus about Thermopylae at that time for fun. I'll do the short version here. I just sort of, that story just sort of struck me. It's like just an amazing story that just had to be told, the stand of the 300 Spartans at the Thermopylae. And at the time, I thought, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Americans only care about stories about Americans. Here's a story about a people they've never heard of, a battle they've never heard of, that they can't spell, they can't pronounce. That happened 2,500 years ago. Who's going to care about this? But I was just kind of seized by this story and just had to tell it. So it took about like two years or more to write it completely on spec, no contract or anything like that. And actually it was Sean. Nobody wanted the book. It was like 800 pages long. Nobody wanted it except Sean, who you talked to the other day. He was an editor at Doubleday and he kind of went out on a limb and bought it. So uh, I'm not sure if that answered what you wanted to ask, Joe, but ask me another question if I I missed what you were after there. No, no, that that was just it is, you know, how did you you know, come about because again, like I read the book, we've talked before, you know, right before my first deployment and just had a profound impact on how I faced that deployment. And so, you know, this book that you wrote, you had no idea, you know, would take root, you know, just impacted so many people and has continued to influence military leaders today. So I just, I had to ask a question about it. Okay. (laughs) Well, I know that General Jim Mattis, who's become a friend of mine, I used to send him like 25 signed hardbacks, you know, once a year, once every two years, so that he could give away to people. And he would give it away to Marines who were in the hospital who had been shot or something like that or wounded. And that meant probably more to me than it did to the people that got the book. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And there's actually a story. He's a, I believe he's a three-star general today. 
but a guy who was a battalion commander in 2006, 2007. And Michael Yan, the reporter, was following his unit around. The battalion commander got shot in a firefight, ended up in the hospital, and he asked for his Bible and a copy of Gates of Fire to be brought to him. And so it's just one of those books that you know, just influenced so many people. So now I have to ask, Steve, if you know, a lot of your books are historical fiction based off history, if you could recommend pairing historical nonfiction books to pair with your historical fiction, what are three to five that you would recommend? Okay, it's a great question, Joe. I would certainly recommend Herodotus, the histories. And these are going to be really kind of obvious things. The Iliad, Homer's Iliad, for sure. And I also would say Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War, one of my all-time favorite books, although it's incredibly hard to read. And another book that you might not have heard of, you've heard of it, I'm sure, Joe, called The Education of Cyrus by Xenophon. Xenophon with an X. And it purports to be the story of Cyrus the Great of Persia and how he was raised and so on and so forth. But in fact, it's really about the Spartans. And Xenophon was an Athenian, but he was very much of a friend of Sparta, which was kind of rare in those days. And he really, he knew about the whole way the Spartans raised their boys and stuff like that. And so for whatever reason, he had to disguise it in this book. But it's a great way to get an insight into that, you know, the agoge, the whole upbringing of kids in that era from somebody who was actually there. And here's another one that I love from that old days. It's called uh, The Symposium by Plato. Have you read that, Joe? Are you familiar with that book? I bought it. You're a gateway drug for reading. And so I, I bought it after the last time we talked. I finished the symposium itself is only 50 pages. Yeah, it's short. So now I'm reading uh, one of the essays on it that was in the back of the book ah. about it. So yeah, no, it was great. And I actually, yeah, I included it in a, a future Sunday email coming out for Valentine's Day. because it's Oh, uh, really? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this has been a great conversation and we usually try to end our conversation with our guests um, asking the question based off of Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, what is your why? And I know you've gone into that in a little bit in this discussion. And you know, you said that you couldn't do anything else, even if you tried, because you got so depressed. So, you know, what is Stephen Pressfield's why? You know, why do you write? Why do you, you know, write the books that you do? Why do you live the life that you live? Let me go back to what I said before, Jacob, about an underground river and of life being lived on two levels, I think. And the underground level, the underground river is the, for if you're an artist or if you're a creative person in any way, maybe you're a, a startup person or whatever, that river is, is the works that you are going to produce, that you are called upon to produce. So um, I know when Simon Sinek talks about start with why, he usually thinks he does it in terms of, uh, some reason that you have, like you want to change the world or you have a, an idea that you want to get out into the universe or something like that. That's not the case with me at all. I have no idea what any effect any of my stuff is going to have on anybody. And to tell you the truth, I don't even care. But my why is that if I don't live by that underground river, I'm really a hard person to be with and I'm very unhappy. So my why is just to to satisfy that imperative inside me, to follow that star, that river. Can I go take this one question further? Because I'm just, 
enamored by the conversation that we've had in your comments. What do you say to people who haven't figured out their why yet? Because I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, in Joe and I have, have talked about this, that you need to sit down and kind of figure out your why, but sometimes it's not that easy for people. What advice would you have for people about finding their why? I would say, and I wish I could have said this to myself, it's a long life. If you're 40 years old, let's say right now, and you're in some kind of creative field, you could realistically say, I've got another 40 years ahead of me of productive time or maybe more. And sometimes it's like they say the reason God made the earth round was so we couldn't see too far ahead of us. And I think that if I were going to say anything to myself as a younger person, I would say, don't put so much pressure on yourself. Sometimes it just takes time. You can't get to the letter L until you've gone through the letter F, G, and H, and so on. And you're not ready to receive what comes at the letter Y until you've gone through, you know, Q, R, S, whatever. This modern world puts a lot of pressure on us to succeed, quote unquote, fast. And I'm probably guilty of that myself. And maybe some of the stuff that I put out there makes people feel like, oh, shit, I got to like find my calling tomorrow. Sometimes, at least from my own experience, it just takes a long time. And I think the best thing is not to beat yourself up too much. Be patient and, you know, it will reveal itself. Steve, thank you so much today for your time. And as always, you know, I learned so much when we get a chance to talk, whether it's in person, email or through your books. So we really appreciate you making time for us today. Well, thanks, Joe. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be part of the Green Notebook. And I know this that uh, you guys are both going to be evolving and evolving and evolving. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what it is for all of us. Can I put in a last plug for a man at arms before we sign off? A hundred percent. Go ahead. I uh, just wanted to say that to everybody, the new book is called A Man at Arms. And uh, it comes out in about a month. We're going to have a bunch of kind of promotions and giveaways and stuff like that on Instagram and other places. If you want to find out any more about it, www.amanatarms.com. That'll tell you everything you need to know. Thanks a lot, Steve. Take care. Keep all up right, the great Steve. work. Thank you again to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of From the Green Notebook. Check us out at fromthegreennotebook.com, where you can download past episodes, read some of our previous blog posts, and sign up for our monthly reading list and Sunday email. If you enjoy the podcast so far, please subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at FTG Notebook, as well as Instagram and Facebook. You can find us by just searching from the Green Notebook. So this is Jacob Garonsky signing off and hope you tune in to our next episode. I came from the mud, desert on my head.